When you're part of a religion that perpetuates a militaristic mindset about what faith is, violence is inevitable. How do you exact just cause and how do you stamp your faith onto something when you so blatantly defy the most basic rules of the religion that you claim to profess? One thing that these events teach us is that much of the violence perpetrated by Christians over time has had much more to do with three key things above anything else, power, bigotry, and fear. History does repeat itself, especially when it involves killing people in the name of a god who only knows how to deal with conflict by killing people. Yeah. Anytime people die over religion, it's ugly. But when your focus shifts from just war to just fuck anybody we feel poses a threat, real or imagined, it gets really, really ugly. What degree of brainwashing is necessary to get people to agree with this shit and go along with it? Welcome to Unbound, a podcast for new atheists and lifetime atheists, ex-evangelicals, truth seekers, and free thinkers. There is life after faith. And life here is good. It's time for a new perspective. And a better conversation. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And it's time to get unbound. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Jesus, Matthew 10, 34. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And tonight we are taking a brief look at the history of Christian violence and how this religion governed by the so-called Prince of Peace has managed to rack up a body count that puts almost every other act of religious aggression and extremism throughout history to absolute shame. We'll start with the Bible itself and work our way into the modern day showing the parallels that exist in the motivations behind religious aggression. But before we dive into that conversation... Blessed insurance, Canadian sensibilities, and an actual nightmare at 30,000 feet. It's Christians behaving badly, just plain infuriating, and momentarily encouraging addition. <laughs> what have you got for us this week, Shell? Well, in the Play Stupid Games, Win Stupid Prizes department we have, this health insurance alternative is not good for your health, nor does it insure anything. I've heard of this. The Christian healthcare sharing ministries have scammed over 10,000 families, leaving them with over $50,000 in unpaid health bills. This is about one of these ministries called the Charity Ministries. Charity. Is Charity. A dumb name. They are currently filing for bankruptcy. An article in Christianity Today says they have so many outstanding claims that the chances of those claims being paid are either slim or none. You see, I understand that bankruptcy is a good, it's a good thing. Yeah. It helps a lot of people, but it also does this. Yeah. It also facilitates this. Right. It'll solve the problem for the people who run this, whatever you want to call it, company, I guess. Mm, I guess. It, it's a it, ministry. Yeah. So probably not even paying taxes on top of everything else. Um, it works out well in their favor, but not in the favor of anyone that they scammed. I mean, no. there's the whole aspect of you can't draw blood from a stone. So once the money is gone, even if they get sued, it's not likely that these people will ever see a penny. No. And that kind of sucks. It really does. From the Christianity Today article, the organization had faced challenges, class action lawsuits, and cease and desist orders in several states where regulators said it had been operating as an unauthorized insurance provider. 
A 2022 lawsuit from the state of California alleges Charity denied the majority of claims and spent as little as 16 cents on premiums. Wow. Even the Alliance of Healthcare Sharing Ministries called Charity a sham front group for the for-profit healthcare management company, Alira. When Christianity Today reported on the ministry in 2020, Charity had blamed Alira, its vendor, for acting in bad faith against the ministry and its members and tried to distance itself from the company. At its highest point, Charity had about 40,000 member households nationwide, but that number declined as news spread about unfulfilled requests and lawsuits against the company. This is just one company, but all of these health-sharing companies work similarly. Groups ask everyone in the system to pay a specific amount into the insurance pool every month, but the companies don't collect all the cash or send it to healthcare providers. For a fee, the company simply tells individuals where to send their money. For instance, Bob from Nebraska. You gotta be kidding. Oh my God. I know. And how much to send. If you need something covered yourself, you make a request and the company will send your name to others in the pool. That's not really different from regular insurance, but it's not as regulated, not all services are covered, and the providers can cut you off any time if you become too expensive to insure. Even worse, if you do something they deem immoral, you won't get any money at all. Good luck getting that contraception, and you sure as hell can't cover your same-sex partner. Of course not. I'm reading these words and I'm thinking to myself, you know, how do you even call yourself an insurance company yeah. if this is the way that you're you're going to manage things? And this notion that they can deny you coverage over moral issues. Yeah. I'm certain that isn't even remotely legal. Yeah, probably not. But when has that ever stopped them? It's not just charity ministries that's in trouble. Regulators in New Hampshire, California, New York, and several other states are investigating those so-called ministries. In many cases, they are finding that people either were misled or did not understand how little coverage they would receive if they or a family member had a catastrophic illness. Of course, here's their defense. They've said they're not providing health insurance at all, therefore it can't be insurance fraud. They've kind of got a point. Kind but of. they kind of also framed it like it was health insurance of to the course. people that they scammed. So Because it wouldn't be a scam otherwise. Well, there is that. <laughs> They've also insisted that since customers have to sign a contract that says it's not health insurance, everything is on the up and up. So just like Christian music, Christian movies, or Christian theme parks, they attempt a version of the real thing, but their versions are always much, much worse. This is what we like to refer to as a very unreasonable facsimile. Yeah. Don't get pulled in. And there there are organizations like this that are not faith-based also. So right. whatever you get involved in, especially when it has a direct influence and impact on your health, know what the hell you're getting into. Oh, yeah. Because this is a faith-based version of something that's actually a lot bigger. Right. And you have to be very, very careful. And Definitely. it's not just in the insurance arena either. These types of things are out there, and you need to vet them very, very, very well before you go all in and give anybody any money for anything. And that goes double, triple, and quadruple when it involves your health. So oh, please definitely. keep that in mind. Yeah. So uh, some actual 
good-ish news yeah, coming good-ish out of Canada. News. Yeah. A new survey from Canada has discovered that many Canadians believe evangelical Christians hurt society. This, of course, is not news to us. On the other hand, Canadians do seem to like atheists. Here is a small list of bullet points from Hemet Mehta's article of other discoveries from the survey. Muslims, Sikhs, and even mainstream Protestants believe most groups offer society a net benefit. Even when they dislike a group, it's not by that much. Mainstream Protestants believe evangelicals do more harm than good. That's at negative 10%. Infighting. Mm -hmm. Non-religious Canadians think the most dominant religions are bad for society, but give positive marks to Hindus, Sikhs, and Jews. No one likes evangelical Christians, except evangelical Christians. (laughs) Not surprising. Not there. No. Especially not there. No. Every other group says they do more harm than good. A similar pattern emerges with Islam, but even Jews give Muslims a net favorable ranking. Yeah, that, that's saying something. It really is. Yes. It really is. Overall, Hindus and Jews are beloved by all groups, getting blue boxes across the line. Sikhs come very close, dipping into red territory a couple of times, but only barely. While evangelical Christians at negative 43% and Muslims at negative 9% dislike atheists, Pretty much every other group believes atheists are good for society. And we are. Yeah. We're really good for society. We stand up for things like uh, secularization. Yeah. We stand up for, for things like moral causes. And we stand up against things that deprive people of their rights, that interfere with their enjoyment of life. And we don't really give two shits what any God says about any of this. We just want people's lives to be better. And I'm, I mean, isn't that why we're doing what we're doing right now? Right. Because we want people's lives to be better. I know that the motivation of most of the people sitting in the pews when they hand you that tract or uh, try to um, try to engage you about the good news, they do believe that they're trying to help you. Yeah. I, you know, I, I believe that. But I like the fact that as an atheist, I can do that without, for starters, an ulterior motive. Yeah. And also... Not for any other reason than that it's simply the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. You know, there's this whole reward and punishment aspect of Christianity that in my mind taints any good thing that they try to do. Yeah. Because they're looking at it from the standpoint of reward and not just from the standpoint of it's the right thing. Mm-hmm. So I think that right there is the major difference between how a Christian approaches things that they believe are helping society in the way an atheist does. Right. Keep in mind that Canada as a whole is less religious than ever. A different survey released in November found that fewer than 70% of citizens were religious at all. A reporter asked one Christian leader why he thinks evangelicals are so widely disliked. And the answer was, movies don't portray us well. People don't know us. Persecution! Yeah, you know, that's... that's and I won't say it's the trifecta yeah. of excuses, but it is a it is a trifecta yeah. of excuses that is familiar. Yeah. You know, the whole persecution complex thing. We talked about that just a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, all of this stuff, nothing nothing but nothing but excuses. You know, movies don't portray you well. Well then, you know, show us something better. Right. Don't let us get our information from the movies. Let us get it from the source and let us see good things. Right. It, it just seems pretty elementary to me. Yeah. The leader said, I watch Netflix like everybody else. 
And really, when you see the perceptions of evangelicals or Christians or religious people generally, devout religious people are usually presented as deviants. Because you are. But honestly, I don't know what movies he's watching or what shows. Because Christians get the most undeserved good characterizations of any group. The phrase, they're a good Christian person, doesn't have an equivalent in any other religion. That's true. As but a you know, catchphrase. I will add my two cents in here, though. A lot of times, especially when they're framed in sitcoms and even dramas, you know, let's not even try and narrow it down to a genre, mm. they do kind of paint Christians in a yeah. bad light. In a number of scenarios, they're not really portrayed as saintly. Let's just put no, it that no. way. And sometimes it's just a matter of poking fun. Sometimes it's a matter of trying to make a point about the way that they think. And sometimes it's a little bit of both. Yeah. But yeah, they tend to be handled a little bit more with kid gloves yeah. than other groups are. But I do see a decent amount yeah. of um, criticism in popular media. Yeah, that's fairly recent, though. I mean, it almost used to be unequivocally wholesome, especially in the 80s. Well, yeah, if, you, if we're going to look as far back as the yeah. 80s, then Well, we yeah. should, because those are the things that I know Right. when I was actually hip. There was less of it then, Yeah. but it was still a thing. I think that people are a little bit more outspoken now about yeah. a lot of things than they used to be. Oh, definitely. But it's interesting how it just sort of comes in waves, though, because there were things that 40 years ago we were very outspoken about that we don't talk about now, that are just not socially acceptable right. to talk about now. And a lot of the same attitudes and beliefs and thoughts are in there, but they don't come out, especially if we're talking about TV. Think about a show like All in the Family. And what if they wanted to produce that now? Oh, God, no. It would never fly. Oh, gosh, no. And then conversely, when you look at a show like, and this is going back a little ways, but it was the first one that jumped into my head. When you look at a show like Grace Under Fire. Right. With the uh, crazy evangelical mother-in-law. Huh. Yeah. That's, uh, that's one of the big examples of this that I see in my head. They didn't exactly paint her in a good light. No, they did not. And there's a bunch of other examples there. I, I think that we handle Christians with kid gloves in other areas more than in the media. Yeah. Like, for example, in this last story. Oh, gosh, yeah. And now we're going to talk about the worship service on the plane because we just have to. Do we, though? Yeah, This we was do. fucking infuriating. I know. It infuriates me as well. It infuriates me when Christians of any stripe try to intrude on a space a person can't easily leave. Easily? You can't, you can't fucking leave the plane at yes. all. The video showing the impromptu worship service deserved to have the backlash it did. Oh, hell yeah. The only people who don't think so are evangelical Christians. Because of course. Of course. I mean, they're in the spotlight here. Their inherent narcissistic tendencies are, are going to come out. Oh, yeah. And especially if you dare to decry this like I did on social media. <sighs> I got yeah, swarmed course. with comments yeah. when I when I basically made the point that, you know, freedom of speech provides you an opinion. It doesn't provide you a captive audience at 30,000 feet. Yeah. It's also infuriating that they asked the pilot before they did it, and the little service was announced over the loudspeaker. Did they take a survey of the people on board the flight before they did this? No. Oh, I'm certain that they didn't, and, you know, it just... I'm sitting here thanking my lucky stars that I was not on that plane. <laughs> yeah, right. Because the stink that would have been made when that plane landed, oh, yeah. Yeah. Hold me back. 
hold me back. I, I could see you literally sitting there and holding my arm or something so that I wouldn't just jump up out of my seat and confront them. Yeah, right. But uh, you know, I'd like to think that I'd have a little bit more self-control, but I don't know. Yeah. At this stage in my life, with what this thing has done to me, I don't know if I would have just sat there and taken that literally sitting down. Yeah. And you can kind of tell that nobody asked anybody on the flight because some of those people look like they wish they were anywhere else. Oh, there. yeah. Oh, the yes. Thousand yard stairs say it all. Mm hmm. Hemet Meta's clever article on the flight asked questions, several of which I will repeat here. Who thought this would be a good idea? Why can't any of you read the room? Was this plane heading straight for hell or were you taking a detour? What would your reactions be if Muslims simply announced on any flight, hi, we're Muslims? And nothing else. And nothing else. Mm -hmm. Why did preacher Jack Jens Jr., who posted this video last week, caption it with, Jesus is taking over this flight, plain emoji, fire emoji? And let's combine those last two questions. What would happen if it was a Muslim yeah. who in any context, put those two emojis together. I know. It's like, why would you ever put a fire emoji next to a plane emoji? Well, this... I mean, it's the fire of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, but not everybody yeah, but, thinks yes. that. I, my my yeah. sentiment's exactly, yeah, but. Yeah. What kind of discount will the airline offer the passengers on a future flight? Because they better be getting something out of this. A discount? They are giving me a fucking refund. Oh, I know. I no. know. Because and I would have been so angry that all of my chill would have gone. Oh, yeah. No, no. Th this is not what I paid for. No. I did not pay to be a captive audience to a bunch of religious yahoos at 30,000 feet. No. With the captain's fucking consent. <laughs> Fuck that captain. He needs to be fired. I'm just putting it right out there. He needs to be fired. And you know what? I'm not the type of person that goes on the warpath against individuals. Like, if you got my order wrong at Red Robin, I'm not going to go to your manager and tell them to fire you. If you got my order wrong at Red Robin and copped an attitude over changing it, I'm still not going to go to your manager and tell them to fire you. But let me tell you, when you assert your religious liberty at the expense of my freedom to be non-religious. Yeah. You need to be made an example so that your your other uh, saintly cohorts in the sky don't do the same thing. Yeah. This airline owes every person that was on that flight a refund and an apology. Yes, yeah, seriously. The blowback about the video is pretty harsh. Elon Omar, the Democratic representative from Minnesota, tweeted... I think my family and I should have a prayer session next time I am on a plane. How do you think it'll end? Of course, Christians responded with vitriol to her question, especially over Easter weekend. Oh, whoa. Oh, whoa. Oh, it's terrible. <laughs> it's terrible. Look at me suffering for Jesus. Oh, God. An NBC article concludes, Christian identity politicians and activists love to complain about persecution. They label Omar or anyone else who questions them as prejudiced. But in reality, Christians have enormous social and political power in the U.S. They can sweep politicians into office. They can force pregnant people to give birth. 
They can even force you to listen to them sing at 30,000 feet up in the air. They better be prepared to listen to me back. Yeah, right? While I tell them to sit the fuck down and shut the fuck up, this is not your forum. Take that to your church and keep it out of my space. Because believe me when I tell you, I wouldn't have been one of these people staring off into space not knowing what to do. I would have known what to do. And whether it got me in trouble or not, that's what would have happened. I, I promise you that's what, would have hap- that's what would have happened. If I was the one lone voice crying in the wilderness, I would be on my feet and saying, this is not your forum. You need to sit down. You need to shut up. And you need to keep this where it belongs. You see, that is the way that society should work. The people who want access to this sort of thing should be allowed to have it. I mean, the harm that it does to them personally and emotionally and everything else notwithstanding, if this is what they want, they should be allowed to have it. But if I don't want to be part of it, then I shouldn't be made to be part of it. You know, it's one thing when you're standing on a street corner and you're playing your guitar and you're doing the stuff that we used to do during outreaches. People walking by may be a little bit irritated by that, but at least you're keeping to your own space. And, uh, well, not really, because you're on a public street. At least you're doing things in a way where people have the choice as to whether they want to stop and listen, whether they want to pretend that you're not there and walk by, or or whether they want to flip you off as they walk by. But the simple fact of the matter is they're allowed to walk by. What were these people supposed to do sitting in these seats on an airplane while these idiots sang worship songs? Yeah. And the simple fact that... The captain allowed it. You know, I I don't even know what more to say about that or how wrong it was. This is not a religious, um, it's not a Christian airline, okay? Mm -hmm. So keep your Jesus to yourself. Yeah. That's the bottom line. Yeah. And on that happy note, we want to let you know that our Patreon is active at patreon.com slash network. Any size donation that you can make will help us help more people get and stay unbound. That is what we're all about. That's our purpose. And we need your help to keep moving things forward. And if you can't help us out financially, we completely understand that. There are equally important ways that you can help. You can help with your likes, your shares, your five-star ratings, all of the things that make podcasts grow. And first and foremost, tell someone new about the show this week. Tell five new people. Tell 10, tell 50, tell 100. Because you could be instrumental in just one or two people getting and staying unbound. And those are two more starfish into the surf. And week after week, we come back for the express purpose of finding maybe one or two more that we can grab and and toss back into the surf and give them a fighting chance of actually having a life that isn't ensnared with this religion that does a stellar job, as we are going to see momentarily, of framing love as hate and hate as love. Mm. And in keeping with what I talked about a couple of weeks ago, we are taking next week off. It's a road test week. I've got a week of craziness ahead of me, and I need to be able to focus on what's going on at work. So we are going to take next week off, and we're going to be back in two weeks with a show on toxic messaging in Christian music. Now, we've already done violent themes in Christian media. We're going to be talking more specifically about other toxic themes that show up in Christian music and how they promote things like misogyny, homophobia, and other things. Digging into the archives a little bit because that's the music that we know, but I'm also going to be researching some of the newer stuff and finding parallels and 
And uh, it's going to be an interesting conversation. We're going to do that in two weeks. So uh, again, no, no episode next week. I am taking my own advice and avoiding burnout, avoiding anxiety, avoiding all, all the bad things that interfere with doing this thing right. And we're just going to take the week off and I'm going to keep my business rolling. And uh, we'll be back in two weeks with that episode on toxic messaging and Christian music. For right now, let's just get right into this conversation on the history of Christian violence, because there's a lot to talk about and a few very interesting parallels that you may or may not have thought of before. So let's start out laying this one truth out on the table. In its earliest stages, Christianity was a hotly persecuted religion. While there have been embellishments and overtellings of some details, it was dangerous to be a Christian in the first century CE. Many followers of Christ were martyred and many more were tortured, imprisoned, forced into slavery, you name it. Bad things happened. Then a major shift took place. The persecuted became the persecutor, and it started in the pre-Constantine days long before the Crusades, long before the Inquisitions, and long before any of the things we see in movies and on TV. But the history of Christian violence actually begins in the New Testament. Some theologians argue that the disparity that exists between Matthew's account of Judas's death and the one in Acts suggests that the writer of Acts wanted to convey a retributive death for Judas. He bought a potter's field with the money he got for betraying Jesus, and the Holy Spirit wasn't happy about it, so the ghost with the most popped him like an ecclesiastical balloon. Mm. You also have the case of Ananias and Sapphira, who were executed by the Holy Spirit for hiding some of the money they had and not giving it all to the church. Mm. Then there's Herod Agrippa, who in Acts 12 conveniently refrains from admonishing the people to not refer to him as a god. The holy hitman again smites someone, and the report of this particular murder is particularly heinous. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a god, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. Ew, in that order? Yeah, I'm like, ooh, yeah, that's Another thing to love about the NIV. Yeah. Um, But there's good news in, in the next verse. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish and and herod died happily ever after except for that last line that is acts 12 21 through 24 in the niv so now the word of god continued to spread and flourish what a relief (laughs) one author even speculated that the whole business of receiving communion in an unworthy manner and dying was another example of ecclesiastical retribution you can read more about that in first corinthians 11 Then there's the whole vengeful returning Jesus smiting his enemies and all the calamity that befalls the unbeliever in the book of Revelation. We hear nonsensical reports of blood running so deep that it almost drowns the horses, forgiving the fact that all the blood and all the people alive on earth now wouldn't come close to filling the space where this battle is supposed to take place. So as time goes by, we see the early church suffering its persecution, but by the 4th century CE, the political powers that be, or were, started recognizing the power that exists in religious zeal, and especially religious zeal spurred on by followers of a god whose knee-jerked response to 
any and all conflict, your idle insubordination is kill them. So what happens? The emperors all start converting to Christianity. Convenient, right? These people did not have a spiritual epiphany. They saw opportunity in befriending these people and making allies of them. Then St. Augustine comes up with his theory of just war, which we've covered before on this show. To give the Reader's Digest version, he basically concluded that violence with religious intent is morally neutral. It's not right. It's not wrong. It's just necessary. And this is the foundation for which any and all holy wars going forward would be laid. It was at the heart of the Crusades, the Inquisitions, yes, it's plural, and much, much, much more. And what makes this all exponentially worse is the convoluted logic upon which most arguments for it were based. Take this example from Augustine himself. Suppose a man has gangrene in his leg. Left untreated, it will kill him. The only way to save him is by amputating the leg. Against the man's will, a surgeon straps him to a table and saws off the leg. That is an act of extreme violence. Well, it's a medical procedure that was done without the person's consent. From a certain point of view, it's an act of violence, but we're talking about saving someone's life, not strapping cuts of meat to him and marching him into the arena to dodge hungry lions, okay? But the lack of consent here does reflect the conversion tactics used by early Christians in instances like the Crusades. Conversion by force is fine even if blood is shed. The ones who remain, the weaker and most impressionable ones, that is, will give in and confess their faith. This is okay because if they didn't, they'd go to hell. And that's, of course, spiritual death. Mm -hmm. So cutting off the leg of a protesting patient or lobbing off the head of an infidel. Both actions serve the greater good, so they're both fine. Wow, that's convenient. Isn't it, though? Hmm. Um, Then there's the Augustinian notion that if you can find one point of argumentation that shows violence to be somehow moral, that removes the intrinsic characteristic of evil from the entire violence equation. It really doesn't. No, I mean, that's, that's very, very, very convoluted logic. It's then the intention of the perpetrator of violence that determines whether or not it's evil. Cain's intent was self-serving, so killing Abel was evil. Crushing the head of a Moor who doesn't want to follow Jesus isn't evil because the purpose was to spread the good news of the gospel, or at least allow Christianity to maintain its foothold without this person's interference, okay? And that in some convoluted way, is not self-serving. I mean, after all, spreading the gospel and fortifying this thing called Christianity is a five times over biblical mandate. So they've got the very word of God on their side. Only one problem. Jesus never advocated violence as a means of spreading his message. There's nothing in the Great Commission about convert him or kill him. Okay, that's not there. In fact, he actually told his disciples to write off anyone who chose not to listen or convert. And whosoever shall not receive you nor hear your words, when you depart out of that house or city, shake off the dust of your feet. That's Matthew 10, 14 in the King James. There's nothing, and notice please, that there is absolutely nothing in that verse about smashing heads with flails. Yeah. Okay. 
but it was Augustinian influence that would carry the concept of holy war forward well into the 17th century, most notably through the Crusades, and there were many, eight Crusades to be exact, and many more Christians, particularly white evangelicals, still embraced the idea that violence in the name of the gospel is just par for the course. Now, to be fair, among the various reasons Christians have exacted violence on people over the centuries, the Crusades were about the only ones that had, at least initially, even the remotest tinge of moral influence. As Islam spread throughout the East, the Crusades were organized to hold it back and reclaim quote-unquote holy lands from the clutches of Islam. Many who fought in the Crusades considered what they were doing acts of redemption and expiation for sins. Basically, not a small quorum of those who fought in the Crusades considered it penance for their own sins or the sins of the societies that were growing more secular and less rooted in Christianity. They considered dying for the cause of Christ a one-way ticket to heaven, which ironically mirrors the views of some Muslims that dying in battle also wins them favor with Allah. Mm. Of course, they also had other people groups in their crosshairs, including the pagans, but The conquering of pagan areas was more of a personal gripe and more than a few villages were raised for no grander purpose than having neutral areas to establish military presences that would further fortify the landscape and ensure that Islamic forces couldn't continue advancing. It's interesting to note that, at least in the beginning, crusaders found common wartime practices like rape and murder of civilians abhorrent, citing that you don't conquer sin by sinning. Sexual immorality and harming civilians would weaken their ability to accomplish their goals. This wouldn't always be the case, of course, because the crusades became more political over time, making them less about protecting Christianity and more about expanding Western control over the East. Did it work? Well, no, it really didn't. Here's a quote from Encyclopedia Britannica. Approximately two-thirds of the ancient Christian world had been conquered by Muslims by the end of the 11th century, including the important regions of Palestine, Syria, Egypt, and Anatolia. The Crusades, attempting to check this advance, initially enjoyed success, founding a Christian state in Palestine and Syria, but the continued growth of Islamic states ultimately reversed those gains. By the 14th century, the Ottoman Turks had established themselves in the Balkans and would penetrate deeper into Europe despite repeated efforts to repulse them. So lots of people died, and Islam kept spreading anyway. In the grand scheme of things, the Crusades were pretty tame when compared to things like the Inquisitions, and they had the least evil undercurrent among acts of Christian aggression over time. It still amounted to a lot of bloodshed in the name of just intent, though. Yeah. So... How did all of this start? Well, it started with the effective, if maybe not a little accidentally effective, charismatic way about Pope Urban II. Also from Encyclopedia Britannica, the Council of Claremont, convoked by Urban on November 18, 1015, was attended largely by bishops of southern France as well as a few representatives from northern France and elsewhere. Much important ecclesiastical business was transacted, which resulted in a series of canons, among them one that renewed the peace of God and another that granted a plenary indulgence, the remission of all penance for sin, to those who undertook to aid Christians in the East. Now, that is how you convince people who don't want to go to hell, but like the idea of fucking shit up to fight for you. So, Urban assembles a huge crowd. And he spins this heart-rending tale of the plight of Christians in the East being persecuted by Muslims. Their religion was under attack, as were their holy places. Harrowing tales of raping, pillaging, and plundering were told. Emotions were churned. And then there was this. 
He urged those who were guilty of disturbing the peace to turn their warlike energies toward a holy cause. They're the fucking suicide squad. Yeah, great. (laughs) He emphasized the need for penance along with the acceptance of suffering and taught that no one should undertake this pilgrimage for any but the most exalted of motives. Well, they bought it. Cries of Deus Levolt, or God wills it, rose from the crowds, and people donned their crosses and set out for battle. The rabble did, however, have the help of plenty of legit military types. Warrior knights who knew what they were doing would head up the fray, and then the less savory types who were there just to kill people and break shit would play cleanup. Either that, or they would be used as pawns to thin out the Muslim armies to make lighter work for the real warriors. It could go in either direction. The last word I'm going to offer on the Crusades involves an interesting parallel between the Holy Roman Catholic Church and our misguided, hapless, white evangelical friends. Eschatology, or the end times, for those not in the know. Jerusalem has been the focal point of lots of eschatological themes. That's eschatological, not scatological. Mm -hmm. Uh, Interestingly, that's only one letter off. Mm -hmm. Um, Jerusalem has been the focal point of lots of eschatological themes, rumors, stories, and more since the book of Revelation has been a thing. So many who fought in the Crusades either thought they were either staving off or bringing about the events in Revelation, and both sides were equally happy to be involved in the process. The end of the world and the final conquering of evil remains a huge motivator and the source of all kinds of conspiracy among militant conservative Christians to this day. You know... Anytime people die over religion, it's ugly. But when your focus shifts from just war to just fuck anybody we feel poses a threat, real or imagined, it gets really, really, really ugly. So let's take a few minutes and talk about the Inquisitions. Yes, it's plural, at least in in terms of what this actually was. And we've we've touched on this in the past, too, so I'm going to narrow the focus a bit for this episode. Let's just call it by its classical name, the Inquisition, and understand that it's that it wasn't just one initiative here, right. that it was a bunch. But the Inquisition was not militaristic in nature. It was a lot more sinister than any war ever has been. The Inquisition was a powerful office set up within the Catholic Church to root out and punish heresy throughout Europe and the Americas. Well, who decides what's heresy? Well, the Catholic Church. It was a series of initiatives that began in the 12th century and continued for hundreds of years with varying degrees of nastiness tied to them. Its emphasis on torture to force confessions or anything else the church considered heresy was, in a word, disturbing. It also targeted primarily Jews and Muslims. The Spanish Inquisition was particularly grisly and oppressive, having been responsible for at least 32,000 executions over the course of 200 years. Some historians estimate the numbers to be much higher, and evidence exists to suggest that all the Inquisitions together could have been responsible for body counts in the seven-figure category. So what did all this entail? Well... It's centered around the actions of church-sanctioned inquisitors. So, with no warning or announcement, these guys would just show up in a town, announce their presence, and almost immediately start pointing fingers at the townsfolk. They were sporting about what they did. They were nice enough to give the citizens the opportunity to admit to acts and thoughts of heresy. Some did so out of fear and received punishments that involved things like a simple whipping, 
or other slightly more involved acts of penance. If you didn't want to confess, it was likely you'd be accused, and those accused were forced to testify against themselves in the star chamber hells they called courts, and with little or no evidence, pretty much anyone the Inquisitors decided were guilty paid hefty prices that most typically involved grisly torture and execution. And they didn't like clean methods like beheading. Oh no, you could be burned at the stake, you could be drawn and quartered, you could be dismembered, flayed alive, even crucified. The more horrific and ghastly, the better. And if you had enemies in your town, you could almost count on being accused of heresy under false pretenses. If this sounds familiar, it should. It's almost precisely how the Salem colony dealt with accusations of witchcraft. History does repeat itself, especially when it involves killing people in the name of a god who only knows how to deal with conflict by killing people. Yeah, that's and problematic. Yes, very problematic. And since an inquisitor typically fit various psychological and personality profiles, none of them good, they had these jobs because they liked them. They took sadistic pleasure in accusing and punishing the innocent, and I have no doubt they knew how few of these accusations of heresy were actually legit even by idiotic doctrinal standards. Count Raymond VII of Toulouse, for example, had a reputation for forcing confessions and then burning the confessor at the stake anyway. He then confiscated the lands of the people he killed and got rich off of his inquisitorial duties. Giles Corey, anybody? Yeah. This was the reason why he refused to confess. All he ever said in the three days it took them to kill him was more weight. And most of it had to do with, I'm not confessing, so you can't take my family's land away from them. Yeah. That was most of it right there. there there's a much more romanticized version of the story that you hear on the tours, but that's really what it was all about. So interesting parallel there. History yeah, does repeat itself. Then, in 1307, Inquisitors were involved in the mass arrest and tortures of 15,000 of the Knights Templar in France, resulting in dozens of executions. Joan of Arc, burned at the stake in 1431, is the most famous victim of this wing of the Inquisition. Now, they say the road to hell is paved with good intentions. The Crusades were at least initially about maintaining a specific religious heritage and freeing people from religious persecution. The Inquisition, though inherently evil, was supposed to be about eradicating sin and enforcing a stringent church-ordained moral code, but both of these things eventually spiraled into things that were way less about faith and more about opportunism and feeding certain unsavory individual sadistic natures. But one thing that these events teach us is that much of the violence perpetrated by Christians over time has had much more to do with three key things above anything else. Power, bigotry, and fear. So let's talk for a few minutes about a little thing called the Malleus Maleficarum, because it encapsulates all three quite nicely. Before the 15th century, witch hunts and prosecuting people for witchcraft was very rare, but the Inquisition went a long way in normalizing the idea and also laid a solid foundation for punishing perceived heresies. Over the course of the Inquisition, it became clear that the likelihood of eradicating every form of perceived heresy that ruffled the church's feathers was somewhere between unlikely and impossible. Failure to wrangle in all the various types of heresy that the church identified made some people think that maybe narrowing the focus and zeroing in on one thing and instilling fear of what the church and its representatives were able to accomplish would be more effective. 
It was the failures of the Inquisition that led to even nastier, more aggressive measures to curtail heresy, particularly things they considered witchcraft. Enter Heinrich Kramer. Now, if I believed in hell, I'd also believe that there's an entire circle here established solely for this asshole and everyone who followed his lead. Mm. And surprise, surprise, Kramer was a Catholic priest. His Latinized name was Henricus Instator. He published his treatise in 1486, and according to the Wikipedia entry, it has been described as the compendium of literature and demonology in the 15th century. It also says the top theologians of the Inquisition and the faculty of Cologne condemned the book as recommending unethical and illegal procedures, as well as being inconsistent with Catholic doctrines of demonology. People involved in the Inquisition <laughs> found this thing immoral and unethical and yeah. questioned the legality of a lot of what was in it. So just just chew on that one for a couple of minutes. Yeah, right. Kramer wrote the Malleus Maleficarum following his expulsion from Innsbruck by the local bishop due to charges of illegal behavior against Kramer himself and because of Kramer's obsession with the sexual habits of one of the accused, which led the other tribunal members to suspend the trial. Even people who thought like him and followed his lead a certain distance understood that this dude was deranged and that they shouldn't trust him. The book urges secular courts to prosecute witchcraft as it would the most violent and heinous of offenses and punish it with grisly torture and death. It goes as far as to encourage torture to obtain confessions and then enact the death penalty as the only certain way of remedying the practice and propagation of witchcraft. And this encouragement was willed into nightmarish reality and used to kill countless people, most of whom were flatly innocent or suffered from various mental illnesses that could only be evidence that the person was a witch or operating under the influence of demons. And just to give you an idea of precisely how fucked up this thing actually is, here are a couple small excerpts from the Malleus Maleficarum. The method of beginning an examination by torture is as follows. First, the jailers prepare the implements of torture. Then they strip the prisoner. If it be a woman, she has already been stripped by other women, upright and of good report. And how are you upright and of good report if you're engaging in anything like this? That's what I want to know. Yeah. And when the implements of torture have been prepared, the judge, both in person and through other good men zealous in their faith, tries to persuade the prisoner to confess the truth freely. But if he will not confess, he bids the attendants make the prisoner fast to the strapato or some other implement of torture. The attendants obey forthwith, yet with feigned agitation. Then... At the prayer of some of those present, the prisoner is loosed again and is taken aside and once more persuaded to confess, being led to believe that he will in that case not be put to death. Here it may be asked whether the judge in the case of a prisoner much defamed, convicted both by witnesses and by proofs, nothing being lacking but his own confession, can properly lead him to hope that his life will be spared when even if he confesses his crime, he will be punished with death. That's just one segment. And then there's this. The judge may safely promise witches to spare their lives if only he will later excuse himself from pronouncing the sentence and will let another do this in his place. Wow. That is beyond sinister and beyond nefarious and just beyond disgusting. Yeah. So basically, no one who was accused under these circumstances was going to get out alive. 
There was no possible way. They would be made various promises. Those promises would be broken. Thou shalt not lie anyone. I mean, you're supposed to be doing this with righteous intent. How do you do it breaking one of the 10 foundational rules of your faith? It makes no sense. One? Oh, my God. How many of the commandments are broken with everything that they're doing here? Oh, yeah. But, I mean, let's let's deal with the with the tiniest pachyderm in the room and talk <laughs> about the whole concept of lying. How do you exact just cause and how do you stamp your faith onto something when you so blatantly defy the most basic rules of the religion that you claim to profess? And, you know, it makes no sense. No. So, yeah, once you were accused, you were done. But it was never that simple. They dragged things out as far as they could and would torture the accused until they confessed or died. So much for 70 times 7. Now, my question with all this, what degree of brainwashing is necessary to get people to agree with this shit and go along with it? There is an answer running through my head, and it's ask any Nazi. Yeah. You know, because it was basically the same thing. You know, these people are only following orders, right? But there's got to be something more to it. And we know that we know that Hitler was a very charismatic dude. There had to be some very charismatic and uh, and convincing messaging that went along with this that would cause people to think for even five seconds of their lives that this was a good idea. So not surprisingly, the Malleus Maleficarum was the thing that almost single-handedly led witchcraft from being perceived as a petty offense to being a serious criminal act punishable by death. And just like heretics were burned at the stake during the Inquisition, it became one of a few standard methods of dispatching accused witches following the lead of the Malleus Maleficarum. A lot of people think that this is how they dealt with things in Salem, but Salem was tame in comparison to this. Lots of hangings, no burnings. Right. At least there was that. Yeah. Um, I don't know. When I was younger, I recall distinctly hearing people talking about witches being burned at the stake in Salem, which is not at all what happened. No. Not even remotely. I think they're they're kind of mixing their historical events a little bit when they talk about that. Probably. Unless you're paying attention, you don't know. No, that's true. Now, prior to the release of the Malleus Maleficarum, penalties for witchcraft involved things like spending a day in the stocks or other innocuous forms of public penance. But once Kramer published this nefarious volume, witchcraft became elevated in the minds of many to something far beyond idle tomfoolery or some petty infraction. Now, it was something to be looked at as imminently dangerous and threatening. Bandwagon effect, anyone? The worst of the persecutions and punishments for witchcraft fueled by the Malleus Maleficarum took place between 1560 and 1630. The momentum died down considerably in Europe around 1780. Remember 1692? Yeah, there were reasons behind the timing of that. People had been taught to think in a very alarmist and reactionary way about witchcraft, and much of that alarmism came from this one source, and it spilled over into the Salem colony. Yeah. That's where a lot of this came from. Between the Inquisition and the prosecutions that happened as a direct result of the Malleus Maleficarum, it is estimated that the body count for all forms of heresy could be anywhere from, it's an astronomical divide here, 600,000 to 9 million, depending on how one interprets the carrying out of death sentences that could relate to matters of heresy and witchcraft. It's appalling either way whether it's 600,000 or 9 million. 
but it's likely closer to the higher number than it is to the lower. So with all of that happy history out of the way, let's look at some of the more modern examples of Christian violence and how they relate to all the things that we've talked about so far. First, there's the whole notion of white supremacy. There are several groups that fall under this cover and many, many smaller groups that adhere to similar ideologies. The two main players here, though, are the Christian Identity Movement and the Ku Klux Klan. The Southern Poverty Law Center explains Klan ideology this way. Quote, according to their propaganda, KKK members and Christian identity adherents believe the Bible is the family history of the white race. They believe that white Christians are morally and spiritually superior to other races and that the Old Testament's 12 tribes of Israel represent the origins of the white race, including the Anglo-Saxons, Celts, and more. Their beliefs advocate that God created other races as mud people who have beast-like roles and lower standing to white men. They condemn race-mixing in Jews who they perceive as enemies to God. They further believe whites are the only race that continually followed Jesus Christ. Such religious interpretation dehumanizes non-whites and provides spiritual justification and perhaps motivation to attack their enemies. And here are just a few examples of the hate crimes that the Klan has perpetrated over time, according to Essence Magazine, which I think is a a good, credible source for something like this. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go through just a couple of these, direct quote a few of them for you, so that you just get an idea of the types of things that have happened over time. Let's start back in 1921. This was before the the quote-unquote modern iteration of the Klan. It's been around for a long time. So... The Tulsa riots in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1921, between 21 and 200 black people were, it's amazing how these numbers, the, there's such a divide because there's so there's so much debate over whether or not certain things actually happened or happened for these reasons. And again, I'm going to, I'm going to go on record saying I'm looking at the higher number here. Between 21 and 200 black people were murdered after residents began rioting when a black man was accused of raping a white woman. Tulsa KKK founder W. Tate Brady participated in the riot. So now we can fast forward to 1955, which is the clan that we know today. Emmett Till was a 14-year-old black boy who was badly beaten to the point that his face was disfigured and one of his eyes was dislodged from its socket before being fatally shot, tied to a fan, and thrown in the Tallahatchie River by two white men for allegedly flirting with a white woman while visiting a local store. They killed him for probably just saying hello. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's probably most of it. Murder of Willie Edwards, Alabama River, Alabama, 1957. Willie Edwards was abducted by Klansmen and severely beaten in his car before being forced at gunpoint to jump 125 feet to his death off a bridge over the Alabama River. Let's move into the 1960s. Murder of Medgar Evers in Jackson, Mississippi, 1963. Medgar Evers was a civil rights activist, husband and father, who was assassinated by KKK member Byron Della Beckwith in his driveway while returning home from a meeting with NAACP lawyers. All's quiet on the 1970s front, oddly enough. Mm. That doesn't mean nothing happened. It just means it didn't make it into this article. Then there's the Michael Donald murder. This happened in Mobile, Alabama in 1981. Michael Donald was killed by KKK members after being questionably charged with the murder of a white policeman. 
The clan members beat him with a tree limb, strangled him with a rope, and slit his throat before later hanging him from a tree in a local neighborhood yard. That's something to come home to at night. 1995, Mount Zion AME Church burning in Greeleyville, South Carolina. The Mount Zion AME Church was burned to the ground by AKK members before later being rebuilt. 2011, murder of Jason Smith in Eris, Louisiana. Jason Smith was a 14-year-old black student from Louisiana who was found dead in a local lake with his organs missing. Although his death was ruled an accidental drowning, his father and family maintained that the killing was the doing of local KKK members. And we go all the way to 2016 here. I'm going to just read one more. This comes from uh, Anaheim, California, 2016. The stabbing of anti-KKK protesters at a Klan rally. Three people were stabbed by members and supporters of the KKK while protesting against their rally in California. And that was just a few years ago. So this just goes on and on and on and on and on. And that is, I mean, we're, we're talking about not even the tip of the iceberg. We're talking about a crystal on the tip of the iceberg yeah. when it comes to what these people have been uh, involved with and responsible for. So kind of the the sibling or or partner organization here with the KKK is an organization called the Christian Identity Movement. And this is probably a little bit more familiar than it sounds. You know, I've heard of them, but, you know, didn't really know much about them before I started researching this episode. But again, it's probably more familiar than you think, because just look at some of the organizations that fall under its cover. You've got the Aryan Nations, the Aryan Republican Army, the Assembly of Christian Soldiers, and then a bunch that I'm, you know, I I admittedly have never heard of. You've got the Covenant, the Sword, and the Arm of the Lord. You've got Church of Jesus Christ Christian, you know. Yeah. Um, let's call the Department of Redundancy Department on that one. I'm not quite sure what it's supposed to mean. Um, we've got the Patriots Council, the Phineas Priesthood, the Shepherd's Chapel. That's just a few of the organizations that are on their list. And uh, they are, I, I mean, all you need to do is is look at those first two and you know what they're about. Yeah. Um, white supremacy, neo-Nazism, these concepts play heavily into the ideologies of the Christian identity movement. And here's just a little bit from the Wikipedia entry about them. Christian identity, also known as identity Christianity, is an interpretation of Christianity which advocates the belief that only Celtic and Germanic peoples, such as the Anglo-Saxon, Nordic nations, and or Aryan people and people of kindred blood, are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and are therefore the descendants of the ancient Israelites. Independently practiced by individuals, independent congregations, and some prison gangs, it is not an organized religion, nor is it affiliated with specific Christian denominations. Its theology is a racial interpretation of Christianity. Christian identity promotes the idea that all non-whites, people who are not of holy European descent, that's holy with a W, will either be exterminated or enslaved in order to serve the white race in the new heavenly kingdom on earth under the reign of Jesus Christ. Its doctrine states that only Adamic or white people can achieve salvation and enter paradise. Where do they get this shit? Because it's not the Bible. They're not getting this from the Bible. 
and fuck you for making me defend the Bible. You know what I mean? Because, you know, let's just be fair. That's not where any of this comes from. I can see where they drag bits and pieces, but overall, these concepts are just, they're out there. They are very extra biblical and the product of these people's imagination, just like the Bible was a product of a lot of other people's imagination when it was written. Yeah. So, so there is that. And I'm gonna I'm gonna spend just a couple minutes on this one because it is it's somewhat controversial in terms of what people believe it was about. But I want to talk just a couple of minutes about the troubles because, you know, as I'll get into a little bit later, as far as I'm concerned, regardless of what the intent was with the conflicts in northern in Northern Ireland that went on for like 30 plus years, there's a guilt by association aspect that's tied to this wherein they chose to separate themselves into factions that were Protestant and Catholic. Yes. So whether or not it was political, there was still the um, the religious aspect to it. So before I get too ahead of myself with that, let's look at their Wikipedia for just a second. Uh, the Troubles were an ethno-nationalist conflict in Northern Ireland that lasted about 30 years from the late 1960s to 1998. The conflict began in the late 60s and is usually deemed to have ended with the Good Friday Agreement of 1998. Although the troubles mostly took place in Northern Ireland, at times violence spilled over into parts of the Republic of Ireland, England, and mainland Europe. More than 3,500 people were killed in the conflict, of whom 52% were civilians. 32% were members of the British security forces and 16% were members of paramilitary groups. Discrimination against Catholics and lack of solutions led an increase in violence and terrorism from both the Irish Republican Army and the Ulster Defense Association, which led to a death toll of more than 3,600 and the maiming of tens of thousands. While the motivations behind the Troubles were primarily political, there was plenty of violence among the opposing Catholic and Protestant factions as well. People were persecuted and killed for their religious affiliations and for crossing lines between Catholic and Protestant in an attempt to establish or extend amity to the opposing side. It was more personal than some sources like to admit, And the simple fact that the opposing factions were identified by their religious affiliations make the religious motivations of the Troubles very difficult to refute or ignore. It's worth noting that much of the motivation behind the Crusades was also political, but in both cases, religious convictions and affiliations were cited as reasons for the conflicts as well as personal reasons for getting involved in the first place. Bottom line, if you don't want your religion criticized over your actions, keep it secular. Keep your actions secular. Both the Crusades and the Troubles were largely secular in their objectives, but both hid under the cover of religion as key identifiers for who they were and what they were doing. Guilt by association. So let's talk just for a couple minutes now about anti-abortion violence. We're going to keep bringing the timeline a little bit closer to home. Acts of violence against abortion clinics and providers dates back to 1977. Since then, there have been eight murders, 17 attempted murders, 42 bombings, and 186 arsons targeted at abortion clinics and providers across the United States. Some clinics have been targeted multiple times, and mostly this happens in Florida. Mm, It's downright dangerous to work in this industry in Florida. 
American Family Planning of Pensacola was attacked a total of five times between 1984 and 2012. The clinic was the target of two bomb attacks six months apart in 1984. Similarly, the Everett Washington branch of the Feminist Women's Health Care of Everett was the target of three arson attacks between 1983 and 1984. They were forced to close their doors after just over a year because the financial losses over the extensive needed repairs were too much for the company to bear. In 2015, a Planned Parenthood center in the greater Los Angeles area was attacked twice in two months. Doctors, healthcare providers, and administrative staff are also targeted repeatedly. Dr. George Tiller, known for his roles in late-term abortions, suffered two attempts on his life, one in 1993 and another in 2009. The latter resulted in his death. Scott Roeder, an anti-abortion extremist, was the killer. When interviewed about the incident, he had the nerve to say, quote, I did what I thought was needed to be done to protect the children. I shot him. Not only did he claim to not feel remorse, he actually stated that he felt relieved. So I had it in my notes to talk a little bit about malicious here. So I'm going to bring them up as a bullet point example. But as I went through my research, it became so apparent that there's enough information here on an entire episode mm. that we're going to kind of just save the conversation on that and just say for this episode that it's part of this problem. Yeah. And we'll show you why in detail in an episode down the road somewhere. Not sure precisely when, but the idea is already in my head. So maybe soon. I'm going to jump right over that and deliver my last point on this, which revolves around end times insanity. One of the most notable examples of this is the Jim Jones cult, the People's Temple. Jones identified Guyana as the safest place on Earth to survive a nuclear Armageddon, so that was the whole motivation behind all those people going there. He persuaded 900 people to follow him there and then made them drink flavor aid laced with cyanide and killed them. This was the largest instance of international civilian death in American history until 9-11. Yeah. Now, that's a two-line synopsis of a much larger, much more intricate and sinister situation. And I will once again defer to last podcast on the left for a decidedly more comprehensive look at the goings-on there. Oh, yeah. So a little shameless plug. They're not paying me. It's just that they did a stellar job with this, and they really they've got... Did. And it was what? It was It was a, a multi-parter. I don't it remember like how many. It was five parts. I was, I'm thinking it was probably five, and well worth um, listening to. If you really, really want to get an understanding of all the ins and outs of what this was about, that's a fantastic resource, and I recommend it highly. Then there was the Branch Davidians with David Koresh at the helm. What many people don't know is that this fringe evangelical cult was around for decades before Koresh and his overactive imagination and libido led to 86 deaths over two separate conflicts in 1993. On February 28, 1993, at 4.20 a.m., the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms attempted to execute a search warrant relating to alleged sexual abuse charges and illegal weapons violations at the Waco compound. The ATF attempted to breach the compound for approximately two hours until their ammunition ran low. Four ATF agents were killed and another 16 agents were wounded during the raid. Five Branch Davidians were also killed. After the raid, ATF agents established contact with Koresh 
and others inside the compound. The FBI took command the FBI took command after the deaths of federal agents and managed to facilitate the release of 19 children without their parents relatively early into the negotiations. On April 19, 1993, the FBI moved for a final siege on the compound using large weaponry such as 50 caliber rifles and armored combat engineering vehicles to combat the heavily armed Branch Davidians. The FBI used tear gas to try and flush them out. Officially, FBI agents were only permitted to return any incoming fire, not to actively assault the compound. When several Branch Davidians opened fire, the FBI's response was to increase the amount of gas being used. Around noon, three fires broke out simultaneously in different parts of the building. The government maintains that the fires were deliberately started by Branch Davidians. Some Branch Davidian survivors maintain that the fires were started either accidentally or deliberately by the assault. Of the 85 Branch Davidians in the compound when the final siege began, 76 died on April 19th in various ways, from falling rubble to the suffocating effects of the fire or by gunshot from fellow Branch Davidians. Mm. They weren't all that bright. No. And they weren't as militarily prepared as they thought they were. In all, four ATF agents were killed, 16 were wounded, and six Branch Davidians died in the initial raid on February 28th. 76 more died in the final assault on April 19th. The events at Waco spurred criminal prosecution and civil litigation. A federal grand jury indicted 12 of the surviving Branch Davidians, charging them with aiding and abetting in murder of federal officers and unlawful possession and use of various firearms. Eight Branch Davidians were convicted on firearms charges, five convicted of voluntary manslaughter, and four were acquitted of all charges. And yes, we're talking about extremist cults in both cases here. But here's the thing. Both were rooted and built up on convoluted interpretations of Christian doctrine, just like the Christian identity movement, the Klan, and ultra-right-wing white evangelicals. All of these things borrowed preferred parts of Christian doctrine and used them as the foundation for committing all sorts of atrocities wherein people were harmed or lost their lives. And let's not forget the motivations behind January 6th. Many of the insurrectionists proudly displayed Christian imagery and considered their cause righteous as the result of some very skewed interpretations and outright inventions of evangelical doctrine. Make no mistake about it, violence is a running thread through the entire history of Christianity. The concept of just war is applied to everything from burning people at the stake, to bombing abortion clinics, to committing acts of insurrection that destroy life and property. When you're part of a religion that perpetuates a militaristic mindset about what faith is, violence is inevitable. From hymns like Onward Christian Soldiers to worship anthems like The Battle Belongs to the Lord, the concept of violence and aggression is seeded into the minds of believers. And while most see the metaphorical and philosophical nature of the messaging, every religion has its extremists. And Christian extremists have a long history of justifications for the damage that they do. The concept of just war is alive and well today, and it breeds attitudes that result in relief when you kill someone. Mm. 
The overlying gripe that I have with all of this is the dishonesty of it. The Crusades and the Troubles both advanced political agendas while hiding under the cover of Christianity. The Inquisition and the carrying out of various objectives in the Malleus Maleficarum had nothing to do with building a more righteous society. They had everything to do with hate and exacting hate in violent ways with impunity, while also hiding behind the cross as their actual motivation. These sentiments and behaviors are mirrored by white supremacist organizations worldwide, the most prominent of which all claim degrees of loyalty to what they interpret as Christian values. So here's the real question. Is Christianity to blame for all of this? Well, when a religion stamps its name on something that causes harm, inflicts pain, and contributes to loss of life, it's at least, like I said a minute ago, guilty by association. And when that religion is headed up by a deity who deals with literally every human conflict by commissioning war and committing and sanctioning murder around every turn, that association becomes clearer and more direct. And while the local church is typically populated by people who champion principles like loving thy neighbor, Christianity continuously propagates thoughts that are clearly racist, xenophobic, misogynistic, homophobic, and more. In short, they perpetuate thought on subjects that are often the root cause of conflict between people. And while that keeps happening, so will violence in the name of Christianity. So, if you're still in this religion, I want to leave you with this challenge. Keep your eyes and ears open. Take note of the messaging that comes from the pulpit and from popular Christian media. So much of it glorifies themes of violence and interpersonal conflict, and it's likely you've never even noticed. But you will now, because I told you you would. And unlike things like backward masking, it won't just be perception. The literal words and images will fly out at you. And when they do, I challenge you to be honest with yourself. I challenge you to not make any more excuses. I challenge you to not sit there and convince yourself that anything that encourages division among people is somehow okay in the context of your religion. Lastly, I challenge you to do something about it when you figure out that what I'm saying is true. They've been slipping the evidence under your radar for years. And that's something that you need to know and understand. And again, you'll see it now. And the only question that remains in my head is, will you let the truth set you free when you start understanding a little bit more about this thing that you call Christianity? Because the more you recognize what this religion is really all about, what it's always been about, it's a lot harder to go on making excuses for it. And when you stop making excuses and just say no to letting that kind of messaging inside your head without examination, you've taken one more step toward getting and staying unbound. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Unbound. Show topics are chosen based on their timeliness, relevance, and social impact. Have suggestions for future topics? Email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to like, share, and throw a few five-star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Links to our social pages as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode are listed in the show notes available at our website, getunbound.org. That's get-unbound.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying unbound. Unbound.